0: Well, good morning. I just would tell you that uh, despite what Dan said, you're getting the second string today, but I really appreciate the introduction and the opportunity to bring God's word to you. And uh, it's a privilege to be here and to be have been worshiping among you for the last few months. My family and I have been blessed by the fellowship here and by Pastor Dan's ministry. If you'd like to, uh, and if you don't have a pew Bible, I know that they'll provide one for you, but we'll be in Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6. Uh, cha- uh, chapter verses 10 and 17, and that's on page 979 in your Pew Bible. And what we're going to do today is talk about a subject that is uh, awkward and embarrassing for many Christians. It's an awkward topic for some, and that is people consider it in many cases uncool, unhip, uh, inappropriate, unmodern, unpostmodern. And what is that topic? Spiritual warfare. And it comes right slap-dab at the end of Ephesians 6 here. And our culture today looks at spiritual warfare with sort of a schizophrenic mindset. On the one hand, nobody likes to talk about the devil. He's embarrassing. You know, they think of him with little pointy horns and a pointy tail and little red tights and a pitchfork and all that sort of thing. And they, they mock him and they underestimate him and they try to ignore him. And then on the other hand, in the culture and in our church, Not this church, but the Western church, you might say. The American church, there's this fascination with the demonic realm, with spiritual warfare, and there's all kinds of books written, most of which are speculation and superstition. And so we have these two extreme views. We scoff or ignore the devil, or we're obsessed with the occult. What we want to do, beloved, is to be balanced, is to be biblical. And this text that we're going to look at today... Is really the clear-cut teaching. It is the primary teaching on spiritual warfare in the Bible. It is the how-to. And that text, of course, is Ephesians chapter six, verses ten through seventeen. And I'm going to read it right now. It's on 979 in your, in your pew Bibles, and I don't know what page number it is on your individual Bibles, depending on what kind of Bible you have. But we'll see. And let's just start in verse nine, uh, verse ten. I'll read out loud. You follow along. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, as we've been working through Ephesians, some people feel like this passage is out of place. You know, if you broke Ephesians down into a very simple outline, you could break it into two halves. Chapters one, two and three are the basis of the Christian faith. What God has done for us, what Christ has achieved for us. That we have received from God better than we deserve through the grace given us and the shed blood, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul breaks into song, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It starts out like that. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we find that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And that's the basis of the Christian faith. And then we come in chapters four, five and six to what some call the basics of the Christian faith, a life lived in light of the gospel, a life of worship, which is ultimately a life of obedience and submission to the will of God, which is found, of course, in the word of God. And then we come to this passage on spiritual warfare and people go, why in the world is this here? And they look at the word finally and go, well, you know, somebody just stuck it in here. Oh, yeah, and by the way, be strong. But you know what? This passage in the sovereignty and providence of God is exactly where it belongs. It, it, it is the capstone of all the teachings in 4, 5, and 6 that have come before it. It's perfectly placed here. Someone arguing that point, someone much wiser than me, said this. And let me read this quote for you. If we are walking worthy of our calling... "...in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new self rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, in the fullness of of the Spirit rather than the drunkenness of wine, in submitting one to the other rather than self-serving independence, then we can absolutely be certain that we will face opposition and conflict." Jesus's ministry began in a great battle with Satan that lasted 40 days and 40 nights in Luke 4, 2. And as Jesus's earthly ministry ended, Satan besieged him again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane with such force that he sweat great drops of blood. Among many other instructive truths, those two accounts teach us that the battle may not become easier as we grow in obedience to God. If anything... Satan will intensify his efforts against those who continue to effectively serve the Lord. As believers grow stronger, so will Satan's attacks. So you see, the Holy Spirit speaking through the pen of Paul here caps off chapters 4, 5, and 6 with this passage by telling us what it takes to do all that we've been told to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And he does more than this because God is telling us to ready ourselves for war. Because as we live lives of worship, we will face opposition. We will face persecution. We will face the seduction of the multiple variegated schemes of the devil in this present evil age. And only here do we find clear teaching on spiritual warfare in the Bible. And this passage is a pregnant passage. It's it's full, and, and, and it's a passage that could take several weeks to... To study in great depth. But today we're going to do a survey of this passage. This message or this talk is entitled Waging War. Its subtitle might be uh, A Primer on Spiritual Warfare. And what we have here are basic biblical principles for living for Christ in our present age. The letter is written to the Ephesians, but by extension it is written to us because it has been preserved and transmitted down through the ages. In in the text of Scripture, in the Word of God. So what I'd like to do today is to share with you three aspects of spiritual warfare so that you may ready yourselves for the conflict that will most certainly come your way if you love Christ and serve Him. Today I'd like to talk to you about waging war for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is every Christian's reason for being and every Christian's responsibility. And I want you to understand these aspects so that you don't become a casualty in the conflict. I want you to grasp these these aspects so that you can wage war competently, capably, compassionately, lovingly, and faithfully. And so let's start with the first aspect. And the first aspect is this. Realize the reality and complexity Of spiritual warfare. Realize. Recognize the reality. And complexity of spiritual warfare. We face a real enemy. And he doesn't have a pointy tail. He doesn't have a pitchfork and cloven hooves. We face a real enemy. We see that in verse 11. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at them together. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of whom? The devil. The devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Beloved, the danger is real, and we must govern ourselves accordingly. There is no peace treaty to be made with the devil, there is no truce that you can call. He does not take prisoners, he shows no mercy. There is no neutrality. He is real and he cannot be ignored. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary of the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Let me ask you a question. If a lion is about to attack you, he's hungry and you look like food to him, do you think by turning your back on him and pretending that he's not there, he's going to go away? Do you think you can reason with him? That you can sit down and dialogue with him and come to a mutual understanding? You can't do that. That's why you must put on, as the apostle writes, the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. So we understand that our enemy is real. Let's talk about the complexity of spiritual warfare. There are multiple methods of attack and multiple levels and angles of attack. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me again. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12 for which means because we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers. Now I want you to watch the plurals here. Rulers, rulers with an S against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places And the heavenly places here speaks to the spiritual realm. You see multiple schemes. See the word schemes there? Multiple schemes. Plural methods and strategies. The word schemes here comes from a Greek word from which we get our word method. And this word is loaded. It's not, the English doesn't do it justice here. It talks about plural or or multiple or variegated cunning Subtle and sly strategies that are difficult to detect and difficult to combat. And we see this against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, against spiritual forces. We have multiple attackers. So we have a very real enemy who has all kinds of strategies that he's perfected over thousands of years. Right? He is supernatural. He does not war in the physical, but in the spiritual realm. And he is aided and abetted by a demonic horde. Fallen angels, demons. People try to take this verse and build all kind of speculative theologies on it where, you know, we're like, okay, what's a ruler? What's, you don't need to know what a ruler or an authority is. You just need to know that it's bad. God doesn't tell you more than you need to know or less. So we need to understand that he's going to come at us in multiple ways and from multiple angles with multiple agents of assistance who will assist him in attacking us, our church, the people of God, everything, those we love. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:14 14 and 15, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. We're told elsewhere that that the devil could deceive even the elect if that were possible. And the point here is, beloved, is that we're facing a very real and deadly enemy with very subtle, cunning and destructive schemes And he's aided and abetted by a demonic horde, and we're going to be attacked from all directions at all sides and at all angles. Therefore, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, don't we? Let's move on to the second aspect of spiritual warfare and and begin to think about how we can avoid becoming a statistic or a casualty in this conflict. Aspect number two is this. Understand the personality and the vicinity of spiritual warfare. Understand the personality and the vicinity of spiritual warfare. I come from a Baptist tradition. We either try to rhyme things or make the words sound the same. So just bear with me here. A lot of itty words here, Okay, But we look again at uh, verse 12. Uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, I use the word personality there to talk about the nature and character and essence of spiritual warfare. It's not a physical war. Certainly it manifests itself like the Nazis or the communists and the Cold War and things like that. But ultimately, it's not a physical war. It is a spiritual war. It is a non-material war. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish, extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's talk about the personality or the character, or the nature of the conflict. It's given away from the get go. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What we wrestle against, beloved, as you go through the text there and you think of things like uh, fastening truth around you or uh, putting on the helmet of salvation or the breastplate of righteousness as we struggle his schemes are primarily ideological philosophical theological you know we're in an age where we have all the exorcism movies and all the hocus pocus on tv but you know what that, that that does happen maybe one in a million times but primarily he's far more subtle than that he doesn't do a lot of card tricks or pull rabbits out of hats he deceives he seduces and he destroys And what happens is he introduces destructive doctrines. He introduces ideas that conflict with the principles found in the word of God. And by osmosis, we begin to to soak them in. And what happens a lot of time is the culture evangelizes the church instead of the church evangelizing the culture. With its ideas and notions that sound good, but are unsound. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2.8, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, there are the enemies again, of this world, and not according to Christ. See, we have all these schemes and these ideas. Truth is relative, we're told. This is true for you, but it may not be true for me. Marriage should be open to all those who love each other. Could you deny people love? My son or daughter is dating an unbeliever, but hey, you know, at least they're not married to him. It's okay. It's puppy love. You know, the Bible, I know the Bible says this, but we have to be practical. Follow your heart. Capital punishment is cruel and immoral. Do you mean to tell me that Christ is the only way to heaven? You're telling me that all the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and the Buddhists and all these people, all these good people are going to hell and you're better than them? You know, all this sounds, oh, you know, oh, oh," you know, and sometimes it puts us back on our heels. But beloved, these are the schemes. These are this tolerance. You know, that word has been redefined from patience to just anything goes. And the terminology reveals the personality and character and nature of spiritual warfare. It is ideological. It is theological. It is philosophical. And why is it so? Because of the battleground, the vicinity of spiritual warfare. Let's talk a little bit about that. The vicinity is the location. The battlefield is your heart and your mind. The battlefield is your heart and your mind. Look at verses 14 and 17 with me here. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and take the helmet of salvation. Where does truth sink in? It sinks in in our minds, doesn't it? And when you look at this terminology here, you begin to see that you're protecting the head and the heart here. And the Greco-Roman world and in the, in the context in which this letter was written, the breastplate of righteousness and mili- the breastplate in military conflicts. Protected you from thrust at your heart. And the heart was considered the seat of the moral conscience. And your head was the logic by which you operated. And the terminology about fastening truth to you, we are to cling to what is true. And all this has to do with the mind, with the heart, with the conscience. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians, see to it that no one takes you captive, excuse me, Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Empty deceit according to human traditions. That's why we have to have the word of God. That's why we have to have truth fastened to us. We have to cling to what is true. We have to view our world through the lens of what is true, not on the lens of feelings. We don't follow our hearts. We follow truth, the word of God, objective truth. That's why we have the Word of God. Paul writes in Romans twelve, two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern with your mind what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right thinking, beloved, clinging to what is true, clothing yourself in the righteousness of God. Shotting yourselves, anchoring yourselves in in the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith, the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the word of God, enables you to see things as they are and governs your mind. Right thinking leads to right attitudes, actions, words, and deeds. So that your mind is not seduced, diverted from what is true, and bent and twisted away from God and toward the pleasures of this world Succumbing to the schemes of the devil and becoming a casualty and a statistic in this conflict. The battle is all about ideas, philosophy, and theology. And that's the personality or the character of the warfare. And the vicinity or locality is in the hearts and minds of the people. So understand the personality and the vicinity of spiritual warfare. It's not physical, it's spiritual. It doesn't take place necessarily on a battlefield. No one's going to charge you with a spear. It takes place in your mind and in your heart. Which brings us to the third aspect I want you to consider today of spiritual warfare. The third and final aspect. And that is the weaponry and the activity of spiritual warfare. Look with me at verse 10. You probably thought I forgot verse 10 and just jumped into verse 11. Not so. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's talk about the weaponry. That's the sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the spirit? It tells you right there in the verse, the word of God. The word of God. It's described like a sword because it punctures those trial balloons. The world and the pop culture will float in your direction. It dissects, it slices and dices the ideas that are thrown at us. It tests the spirits to see if they're from Christ. How? Well, somebody says truth is relative. Many Christians are are unsure. They're uncertain if there's such a thing as absolute truth. But Jesus Christ says, sanctify them in truth, Father. Your word is truth. There is, a, there is a truth. It is objective. It isn't an opinion. It's the Word of God. Should marriage be open just to anyone? Jesus says no in Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He said, you know, from the beginning, it was they were male and female. God created them. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's not just open to anybody. God has a structure and a design. And as enticing and, and, and nice as it sounds to open it up to anybody who loves one another, it's just not. True, it's not the way God intended. Don't be deceived by the culture. My son or daughter is dating an unbeliever, but that's okay because it's puppy love and we're in control. But you know what? In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're told don't be bound together with unbelievers, not even to be a business partner with an unbeliever, not to be in a relationship like a dating relationship with an unbeliever, because what fellowship does light have with darkness? It's one thing to evangelize, but missionary dating is not an option. People say, well, the Bible is so archaic. But Peter writes, the grass withers, he's quoting Isaiah, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. It's not archaic. It endures forever. And I'm reminded that the Bible is forward thinking. It's not archaic. In 586 B.C. or thereabout, Isaiah talks about that God sits enthroned over the circle of the earth. Right? Modern science didn't confirm the earth was round until 1519-20 to with Ferdinand Magellan circumnavigating the globe. In Job, it talks about that God spreads out the space and he hangs the earth as if on nothing. Nobody had the space shuttle or telescope to see how the earth floated in space. The Bible isn't archaic. And as far as following our hearts, right? The writer of Proverbs, what does he say? The one who follows his heart is a fool. We are to see our world through the lens of Scripture, which is the Word of God. That's why we read in Second Timothy, Paul speaking in Second Timothy says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Is Jesus the only way? What does the Bible say? Acts 4.12, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which you can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. We don't say that. God says that, and he says it in his word, the sword of the Spirit, by which we puncture these ideas that the culture floats towards us. You know, the Bible isn't a history book, but when it speaks to history, it speaks accurately. It's not a science book, but when it addresses science, it addresses accurately. It addresses it accurately. And our feelings may deceive us, but facts never will. And the facts are found in the Word of God. God. Using the sword of the Spirit, it is the weapon by which we deflate and puncture the philosophies and traditions of this present evil age. So that's the weaponry. What about the activity of spiritual warfare? Well, we come back to verse 10 again. I'm just going to read a few verses here in the interest of time. And I want you to look at the commands. Finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. Stand firm. What we've been studying so far in Ephesians is the call to obedience, right? Conforming our lives to the will of God, which is found in the Word of God. We're supposed to do all we can to honor Him, right? Right? And that honor, that submission, that obedience, it doesn't save us. It is the fruit of our salvation when we embrace Christ. It is the outflow of what we've become in Christ. But that's what worship is, right? And so, you know, he goes through chapters 4, 5, and 6 and says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Speak the truth in love. Lay aside falsehood. Speak the truth to one another. Be angry, but don't let your anger cause you to sin. It tells you to speak a word for the purpose not of letting an unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but that you might build up and encourage one another according to the need of the moment so that you may give to others grace better than they deserve. Not to speak in a word that grieves the Holy Spirit of God, but speak in a way that pleases Him. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another As God in Christ has forgiven you. And then he goes in to talk about marriage. And he goes in to talk about parenting. And he goes in to talk about work, employee, employer relations here. And then finally he says, put on the whole armor of God. He says, be strong in the Lord. You see, you can't do everything that comes before in 4, 5, and 6. If you're not strong in the Lord. It becomes just like another self-help book. And that's not what the Bible is. It is a love letter from another world. Filled with truth. And we can't obey God if we're not strong in the Lord. If we have not insulated ourselves from the culture, and I don't mean hiding in your house and not going outdoors and engaging the culture, but if you have not armored yourself, protected yourself, protected your mind from the onslaught of the culture, protected your heart from the seduction of the culture, if you have not equipped yourself, if you don't have the breastplate of uh, the shield of faith, It's all about conforming your mind, not to this world, but to God's will. And since we're in Green Bay, I have to use a football analogy. And I want you to think about Aaron Rodgers. Remember the season he got the concussions? Remember the season where it was like, who wants to sack Aaron this week? Maybe the cheerleaders do. I mean, he was getting sacked over and over again. Now, arguably, Aaron Rodgers' arm is his weapon, right? That's his primary weapon. But that arm is no good to him if he doesn't have shoulder pads on if he doesn't have shoulder pads, if he doesn't have a helmet on, if he doesn't have shoulder pads on, if you know they wear body armor, Kevlar, like flak jackets to keep their ribs from getting cracked and things like that, he can go out on the field. But if he's not padded and he's not protected, he's not going to last long. He's going to be a statistic on the injured reserve. He's going to be on the not able to perform list. He's going to be a casualty in that struggle on the field. And if you are not willing to equip yourself, if you are not unwilling to submit yourself to the will of God found in the Word of God, you will not be protected. You will be exposed and you'll never get to use that sword. In fact, you won't know how to use the sword because it'll be, to, you know, you can't cram for life. You can cram for an exam. I have. I'm sure some of you have too. You can cram for a lot of things, but you can't cram for spiritual warfare. And so you have to be. Trained with that sword. You have to take up that sword. You have to familiarize yourself with it. It's balance, it's feel, it's weight. You have to put on the full armor of God so that you can be strong in the Lord. And equipped with that sword, you're able to do everything He's called you to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So we have to embrace the weaponry and activity of spiritual warfare. And the ultimate activity is submission to the Word of God, is embrace of the Word of God. So today, I just want to encourage you as you think of those three aspects that we've covered. Recognize the reality and the complexity of the warfare. Understand the nature and location of the warfare. The nature is spiritual. The location the battlefield is your mind. The weaponry, take it up. And the activity, submit to God and His will and equip yourself as He's called us to do. I want you to make these three aspects daily practices. Because spiritual warfare ultimately... It's just worshiping God. It's not exorcism rituals. It's not magic potions and things like that. It is studying God's Word, praying, loving one another as Christ does. It's, it's serving God. And you know what? You can't serve a God like ours, the one, the only, and all, all wise God, unless you know Him. And you can't know Him and understand Him without the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and conforming yourselves. what that book says so I just want you to think about that this is a quick survey we've sort of skipped a stone across the surface of the lake at 90 miles an hour but I'd just like you to reflect on that dwell on that you know this is communion Sunday I know Dan is going to bring the Lord's supper to us in a moment that this might be a good time to ask yourself am I strong in the Lord as I'm called to be have I taken up the full armor of God or have I just got a piece here and a piece there? Am I a student of the word or am I ignorant of the word? Am I ready, willing, and able to wage war for the glory of God, for the good of others and my own growth? Just think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Lord, sanctify us in truth. Lord, we know that apart from you we can do nothing and therefore we need your protection. We need to avail ourselves to the full armor of God. We need to avail ourselves to the defensive weaponry and the offensive weaponry, which is the sword of spirit, which is the word of God. Only then can we do your will. Only then can we live for you and love others as you've called us to do. Help us, Father, for we are weak and you are strong. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Thank you, Keith. As Keith was sharing uh, with us about spiritual warfare and the... The principalities that war against us, the scripture that came to mind was Colossians 3, excuse me, Colossians two thirteen. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and nailing it to the cross and then i love this part and it's talking about all the demonic forces that face us that war against us it says this he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him as we come to the lord's supper we celebrate christ's defeat Over those authorities, over those principalities, knowing that although Satan is stronger than us, there is one who now lives inside us that is stronger than Satan. And that is why we must be strong in the Lord, as Keith has said. And so as we gather around the table today, it's a great chance if you are like me today, you will be confessing, Lord, forgive me that I have been blind to the spiritual reality of forces waging war against me in my marriage in my devotional life, in everything. And then to turn to the Lord and say, Strengthen me through Jesus Christ to put on the full armor of God, to live for you, and to enjoy you for all eternity. Matthew 26, 26, we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, transforming Passover into His If you're here today and you are contemplating what it would mean to trust in Jesus Christ, we are glad that you are with us, but we would ask that you let the elements pass you by. This is for those who trust in Christ. We are so glad you are here. We hope that you come back and continue to learn about this wonderful Savior. If you are here today and you trust in Christ, when you receive these by faith, God nourishes you in fighting the spiritual battle that He has called you to. We're going to hand out The bread and the juice, if you would please hold it and we will take it together celebrating our unity in Jesus Christ.